Kona hau ki e tahiwahi, kona kai ki orariki. No matter from which way the wind blows, you can get food at the waihora. Kia ora mai koutou, nau mai hare mai anō ki tēnei o te ahikā, ke te whakarongo koutou ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Ko maraia rakaraku ahau. And I'm Justine Murray and this is Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand National, with your weekly dose of all things Māori. This week, after a wee hiatus, we've welcomed back one of our regular segments, Nā Marae o Te Motu, where we profile marae around the country. Slowly, we've been making our way around Te Waipaunamu, the South Island. This week, we're just out of Christchurch in Taumatu at Taumatu Pā, and the opening whakatauki was relevant to that marae, but we'll hear more of that later on. Taumatu sits about 500 metres from Lake Ellesmere, or Waihora, for all you geography freaks out there. In the past, it was known for its abundance of kai, especially eels, because of its closeness to the lake and to the sea. Did you get that? Past? Because, well, it's all changed. And the marae now finds itself at the forefront of trying to reverse the environmental damage caused by going against the natural conditions of the region. Meaning, marae meetings are taking on a whole new meaning. Or are they? So if auntie asks you why you paid out so much to repair a a window, you can actually answer. But then you've also got to be able to answer what has happened with a particular investment, why has such and such a resource consent, why why didn't we challenge aspects of this resource consent, Um, where's the marae lawnmower? (laughs) Why is all those divergent, very different areas, you know? Why aren't the marae curtains up yet? <laughs> Mariah learns more about that and other things a little later on when she is with Nati Muki, Mani Sterling and Fiona Masson of Taumutsu Marae. Mozzies. Now that's a term you hear a lot of these days, Justine, and we're not talking the the land on you blood-sucking kind either, but the human variety neha. Aida, Maria, Māori who live in Australia, Aussie, Māori, Mozzie, and one of the more well-known ones at the moment is Stan Walker, who over recent weeks was the winner of reality TV talent quest Australian Idol. A successful example of a Māori reinventing themselves outside of their birthplace. Tiarawa artist Nina Micah, who has lived in Australia for the past 15 years, is using her experiences as a mozzie to create an art exhibition. Um, I suppose it's about migrational stories and it's about how Māori have come across to Australia and how they've, uh, what are their stories behind, behind moving to Australia. The project would entail that we'd, get, um, we'd have a, a written... Um, element to the project so written stories about these people who have migrated uh, where they're from uh, why did they come to Australia um, where are they going to are they ever going back home Brisbane based artist Nina Micah she's coming up I'm Mariah Rakraku and I'm Justine Murray First up, Roly Habib's experiences at Te Aote Māori Boys College are some of his more memorable. The 70-year-old looks back fondly on his time at the Hawke's Bay boarding school that was modelled on its English public school counterparts. That, when you think about it, is a little bizarre. Yet there's no doubting the Māori men that have come out of Te Aote have shaped the Māori world, in some cases without even knowing it. 
E whaia tonu hia ana ana tuhinga whakahirahira, tuhinga mō teatea, tuhinga whakahihiri tangata, tuhinga whakakakapa manawa, e ngā akonga o ngā kura tuarua o te motu i te neiwa. Engari, hei tāna, nā te kura o te aute, kā tupu, kā hua, wana pukenga, now, the years you were at Tote College, uh, Rauli Habib, you said were some of the happiest of your life. Yeah. I think I liked the, uh, the innocence of it, simplicity of it. Life wasn't complicated like it, like it got later on here, sorry. And it was there that your knack for storytelling was identified by one of the teachers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even even before I knew it myself, I mean, I, and I wasn't I wasn't interested in writing. Being a writer, it, uh, you wanted the teachers Hami, Dwyer, Sam Dwyer, recognised something in my essays and told me, you know, if I wanted to make some pocket money, you know, to think of writing for magazines and things like that. Which you did. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, he didn't didn't suggest that I try and make it a, make a career of it, um, which I did, you know, but never mind. I never made enough to live off it. I always had to do something else, you know. So when you were writing, what was the environment like in Aotearoa for Māori writing? Well, the environment for anyone, whether you were Māori or Pākehā, but when I started writing in the 19, early 1950s, uh, I know, pretty was wilderness. Was wilderness. Went, went many out there, and yeah, it was lonely, very lonely. Um, I had, had, yeah, had no one to talk to. It, I was lonely. It was very lonely. So did you feel like you were paving the way in terms of writing? Um, I knew I was doing something, but I didn't realise that I was, but I, you know, I knew, yeah, I knew I was out on my own, you know, not, not only um, as a New Zealand writer, but from the background, my background, there were, you know, I grew up in a timber mill settlement in the uh, north of Taupo, and um, this sort of thing just... Nobody could understand it, why, why I wanted to write. I didn't understand it myself. Well, why you wanted to put stories that were usually yeah. transmitted orally yeah. into writing. Yeah. Well, just that, you know, that, that somebody wanted to make a lifelong career of writing, yeah. You couldn't understand it. Yeah. It was a very physical place, you know, everybody worked with their hands and... And suddenly this guy came out and wanted to do something with his brain. How does it feel for you then to be honoured this evening as an inaugural yeah. to First 15? No, I always thought, you know, that if I was to be acknowledged that it would lie, I would like my old school, old Tauri, that to come from them. Never mind about anyone else. I, did, I wanted to be acknowledged by my school. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that place. Yeah, I'd, yeah. So the time you were there was was it always encouraged that you would achieve as a student of Teoti? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we were let know in an un, no uncertain terms 
uh, about our illustrious forebears, like, uh, you know, Buck and, and Gutter and Pomari, among others, and uh, Kohere and all of those Ellisons, that, um, you know, they were old boys and, yeah, we always let to know. Um, and you never felt the pressure to go to politics? No, 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 we never... Uh, uh, we were just young and, and trying to survive, I think, at the time. So tell me, Rowdy Habib, do you think it's your Māori whakapapa or your Lebanese whakapapa that makes you look so youthful? Okay. <laughs> do you think it's your Māori or Lebanese whakapapa no, that makes you look so youthful? Good. Probably a good mixture. <laughs> I, I don't know. No, a lot of people ask me, you know, where did my writing come from? And I know, well, I don't all I can tell you is my father was Lebanese, my mother was Maori, and you you decide, you work it out for yourself why I wanted to write, you know, because it just came out of nowhere. There was no, no history of writing in my family. And you've carried on writing over the years? Yeah, still going, yeah, still going. I'll drop, drop dead writing, well, I hope so, anyway. <laughs> Well, let's hope not for a while. Kia ora, Rolly Habib. Now, it was a real thrill for me to interview him as he was one of the first lot of Māori writers to be published. So I had to build up a bit of courage to talk to him, actually. Yep, it was the same for me too when I spoke with Piri Jaja and Apirana Mahuika, who, with Rolly Habib, were amongst the Teote leaders' first 15 named this year. We'll be profiling more of those men in future programmes. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Maraya Rakaraku, and this is... Migration is not an unknown concept to Māori. I mean, hello, we traversed to Moananuia Kiwa, the Pacific Ocean, in Waka, without the advantages of modern technology, relying solely on traditional navigation. So, makes sense that Māori should eventually make their way across the ditch to Australia where the carrot of better money and opportunity has, frankly, seduced a number of my whanau. What about you, Mariah? Mine too, Justine, and we've flooded Australia in huge numbers, over 100,000 apparently at last census count. And that's something Brisbane-based Te Arawa artist Nina Maika wants to capture in a collaborative art project with fellow artist Leona Morete. It will really speak about the experiences of living as a visitor in another country away from your usual cultural norms. Māori who live in Australia, Māori, Aussies or mozzies. The term sounds slightly derogatory, but for members of Melbourne-based kapahaka group Poi Piripi, living there or moving there while young has brought them opportunities they say may not have been found at home. 
Uh, we we moved to Melbourne when I was um, just I was four. I was just turning five. And I grew up there. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a true blue, true blue Aussie. How long have you lived in Melbourne? Uh, Mel- oh, I've been 12 years now. Bit of an Aussie, true blue Aussie. Now, <laughs> but I still know where my roots are. For back in Australia, well, I do call home now. When people do say where you're from, it's Australia. Do you think you'll ever come home and retire or move back home? Nah. Um, why ain't back home? Don't want to come here. Why? <laughs> they make a lot of money. <laughs> and it's these kinds of stories that Brisbane-based artist Nina Micah will record through story, photography and art that will form her latest art exhibition. That is, telling the stories of Māori, who now call Australia their home. Uh, kia ora, ko te arawa takuiwi, ko te arawa takuwaka, uh, ko uh, Tarawera taku moana, um, ko Robin rawa ko Harata o Kumatua, um, ko Nina ahau, kia ora. Well basically uh, what the project um, entails is it's, um, I suppose it's about migrational stories and it's about how Māori have come across to Australia and how they've, uh, what are their stories behind behind moving to Australia? The project would entail that we'd get, um, we'd have a a written um, element to the project, so written stories about these people who have migrated, uh, where they're from, uh, why did they come to Australia, um, where are they going to, are they ever going back home? And then we'd have a, a photographic element, we'd create a photographic portrait of them, and then also we'd have a, um, I, don't, I suppose a, I'm not too sure what the wording would be, or, or a bit like when an artwork, a painting created by a Māori artist that that depicts their whakapapa and their story and their movement of moving to Australia. It's a bit like a tāmoko, but um, with, with the history and, and, and their background, but however it would be painted, painted. So we'd have a written, a photographic and an actual artwork about um, Māori, Māori and Oz, basically, and their migrational stories to um, Australia. And how did this project come about? <laughs> you know, we just certainly one day in the cafe because <laughs> Leona, Leona is yeah, Leona Morete, yeah, is the other artist. And um, well, basically, we actually, her and I, as artists, we kind of bunched together. So her and I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got involved with an arts festival in. Uh, in Redcliffe. It's it, not a Māori arts festival, but we we're basically the Māori element. So we had our tents up and we had our artworks up. And basically we were all just like, we've been up since 5 o'clock in the morning after setting up the tent and stuff. We were all joking around about, oh, what what should we do? Should we do a project or should we make something up? And bang, it just came out of the blue. The, the We just realised, wow, we've got to... Um, Let's create stories about people. Let's let's put in put an put an element of um, Māori. Initially, the project was going to um, just look at uh, just our local area where we are in Brisbane. But then we sat down and realised, you know, um, <laughs> this can kind of be a bit bigger than that. And I said, yeah, we got hookups in Sydney. <laughs> so yes, yeah, it's, it's just kind of growing. Um, it blossomed from yeah. the, that one original <laughs> idea. Yep. And that's how it happens. So, so it's not about um, you know people who don't understand the project. It's not about 
interviewing or talking to every Māori and Aussie. That's not what you guys are doing. No, no. It probably, we'll probably grab a range of people. So we might be looking at people, elderly and young, young families, people who have been there for years, people that are, we'll, we'll talk to people that have only been there for like three months too because we want to get a good um, range so the broader the range, I think the better the, the the difference in stories and where they're coming from. And so, yeah, we want a good broad spectrum of different types of people that have moved across. So, yeah. And the eventual, I mean, at the end of this project, it's an, it's an, it's going to be turned into an art exhibition? Yes, what we'd like to create is, is an art exhibition that um, can be exhibited basically all over Australia, basically to... Um, for the people that are in each area, but we'd also like to bring it um, back home, back to New Zealand to exhibit too, so that people can have an understanding of what's kind of going on with um, Māori in Australia. So, yeah, yeah definitely. Because, I mean, as, as you know, many people know, especially Māori, we're losing heaps of our people to yeah. Gold Coast, Brisbane, there's yep. better jobs, yep. the mines in Perth. Um, so the numbers are quite overwhelming when you think about it. They are. They're huge. Just huge numbers. Like I walk down the street every day and there's a mild person down the road. And that's in Australia. That's more like in the streets of Wellington or, or Tarua. This is, um, yeah, in Brisbane. So, But what you do see there, and which is which is kind of sad, I, I feel it in myself sometimes, but you see young people, whether it be young or old or average, losing parts of their culture. And that's... that's um, what do you mean by that, Nina? What do you mean by... Um, well, I was, I've just recently completed artist-in-residence at a high school, and there's this uh, young fellow there, his name's Richard Green, and he just competed in last year or the year before, just competed in the high school Māori um, performing... Kabaka? Yeah. And He's he his strength in that is just amazing. You know, you can see me, Māori Mean just written across his forehead. Not in a bad sense or not in a funny sense, but in a in a in a good way that he holds his, his cultural pride quite well. However, in Australia there's there's actually in regards to everydayness of Māori dim or just cultural opportunities, there isn't as much opportunity there for a you know, a young guy like Richard Green to be able to, you know, cup like Training for Kappa, the, the, the strength and training, he doesn't have it there, in which I said then you see it slowly dwindle away and turn mm. into, I suppose, looking at, um, you know, Australia is different. The kids, there's only a small few that actually do go out and, um, or parents suggest them to go and join a group or, you know, it's yeah. quite because very we, few yeah. and far between. Because we did speak to the um, Melbourne Kapaka group in Matatini this year and they were saying that every two months they have... Hangier House, yep. there's about 50 of them that come together. Yep. They kind of fellowship and kind of inhale their Māori tanga over a weekend, and yep. that kind of lasts them for the rest of the the month. So, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, the dynamics. I suppose yeah. you've got to have the support networks, don't yeah, you, definitely. Nina? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's very important. I find for myself, as when I came to realise that I'm a, a Māori artist... I was trained in Aussie stuff. You can imagine, I'm like, what the? <laughs> oh, a bit of a, a, a needle in a haystack. So I found that uh, when I exhibited with them, I was like, oh, this is kind of weird because there was no Māori people. It was all Aussie. And I'm like, 
Uh, something's missing here with me. I needed to grow as an artist, as being Māori, to help develop myself. And, um, you know, I was in this world of Australiana. And I'm like, what mm. the? So, um, Did you feel that you needed to have fellow yeah, Māori artists? networking. With you, networking. Yeah, so what happened was with me, I realised that I needed to... Um, meet with other Māori people or find a group of Māori artists or always be connected to um, Māori something. So whether it be... Initially, um, when I first started painting and drawing, I used to just go to my parents' house, fill up the kitty and then shoot off again and I'll be fine. Just be around mum and dad yeah. wasn't enough to... Yep. Yeah, 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 because yeah, they're all together and my sisters and my brother, you know, just that was enough for me. But I've moved to Brisbane and obviously I'm like... What am I going to do in Redcliffe? And um, so what I actually did was I um, searched the local paper, searched the local councils and looked for any Māori group in in the local area and just made contact with them and then just went from there. Friendships built from there. There's no time to be whakamā. Yeah. I mean, hey, I mean... Open up a paper, seek out Māori networks. That's a pretty brave thing to do, to go outside of your comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. oh, have to. You need it to survive, I think. Like, mm. you know, it's no use kind of, which can happen to you, I suppose. You'll just disappear and forget. And trying to, well, I don't disappear, you assimilate. You adjust to your surroundings. So you start... Um, the, the Aussie twang starts rubbing <laughs> off on you. I was going to um, ask you about that yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So because you're hanging out with them, the sayings. I mean, it's just the same as when um, people from overseas travel to New Zealand. They start picking up the lingo and just getting to know the people. So it's the same thing. But sometimes just just trying to get them to remember who they are and where they come from is, yeah. What's the general Māori scene in Brisbane, um, Nina? In Brisbane, I think it's it's an interesting kind of Māori scene in Brisbane. Um, you've got a lot of, it sounds a bit weird, but I suppose anywhere and anyhow, there's a lot of cliques, I suppose. Got, basically in Brisbane, you've got the south side and you've got the north side. You've got a north side, the north side Māoris and you've got the south side Māoris. That's basically because of the distances to travel. So it's quite far to travel to get to everyone sitting in traffic and yada, yada, yada. Mm. So um, there's lots of, there's a couple of kapahaka groups. There's um, there's a lot of, I find I've, I've, I flow quite freely through the Polynesian um, groups too. So Māori and Polynesian tend to mix a bit more. I think Māori in Brisbane, no matter where you're from, is not you're Māori, so you all stick together. Doesn't matter what your tribal affiliations are or whatever, we all have to mingle because there's not many of us, so we look after each other. So you just um, end up in the different groups with different people. There's lots of there's lots of small activities there for Māori people, but I do know one thing is that Māori people in Brisbane are always hungry for more, always hungry for another project or or, or to be um, to even just to have a conversation with a Ma- another Māori person. I think it's, it's quite supportive. Um, it's it's growing, and uh, the community's there. The Māori community is definitely there, and yeah, and doing and being Māori, and mm. doing what they do. So and yeah, there's there's all sorts of um, projects happening happening uh, happening there. There's Māori projects being run in prisons. There's all sorts of a gamut of things happening in Australia in regards to Māori. It's yeah, it's it's quite cool. So Nina, I mean, you've been in, you've been back home. 
in Wellington or in New Zealand for for a few days. What does it mean for you to, to come back home as an artist? You know, oh. what does that bring you other than Fanunga Panga? Yep. For me, it's actually it helps me revi- revitalize or just to get my inspiration going again. Um, I'm in New Zealand, especially at, at this stage of my um, arts career. I don't hold a profile here in New Zealand, which is um, what I'd really like to do, is to start getting start getting out there in New Zealand. Someone said this and described this about my artwork was, you're looking at Māori Dim from outer space. And I said, what the, What does that mean? And, and that means that I essentially had to just, from the guts of me or from the inner of me, being Māori, bringing it out, no marae was nearby no uh, land or sea or what we what we traditionally use as inspiration people or or, or cultures or tradition no access to it aside from internet or a book so therefore the way I saw it is different it's not your normal realm of being a Māori artist, I suppose, in New Zealand. So having that outer stint on things is completely different. It's great living in Australia. I have a, a half Aussie, half Fijian husband, so um, my ties there are, are um, kind of different. But I don't dig um, gum trees sometimes. <laughs> it sounds terrible. You don't dig gum no, trees. Like, what does that mean? The landscape in oh. Australia oh. is like gum trees and can be dry. Sometimes I look like I look at it and I go, "Oh, that's great," and I think I could paint that, but I think, "No, nah, I really don't want to." I need to come back. I need to, needed to come back home or to to come back and to see the the landscape here in New Zealand, to see the rolling hills, to see the um, one, uh, yeah, the waves crashing, just to and to just to be back on Papa, I suppose. It's <laughs> like true. enough. Like you know, I just need to to suck it in and then fill my kitty up and then just go back and go back to the studio and yeah, just let it all breathe. Kia ora, Nina Micah. That's something I can really relate to. When I travel, I really ache for the bush and the lushness of our whenua and funnily enough the light. Yeah, the light's different here, eh? You know, it's much more brighter and to see the way Nina Maika manages that relationship, you can check out some of her earlier artwork at our webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. And while you're there, you can get a heads up on what's happening on the show by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. Most places in Aotearoa, New Zealand, have two names, the English name given by settlers. And the ingoa tuturu, the name given by Māori. In both cultures, place names were either created by memorialising an event that took place there. For example, young Nick's head in Gisborne is named after Nick Taylor. No, not the member of the 80s band Duran Duran. He was the cabin boy who first sighted the distinctive headland on the south side of Poverty Bay in 1769 on board the Endeavour, captained by James Cook. Likewise, the little East Cape village of Rangitukia pays homage to the sun striking it. So let's move to the South Island and Taumutu just out of Christchurch where the nearby lake is popularly known as Lake Ellesmere but whose ingwa tuturu is Lake Waihora. Ngā marae o te motu. So just entering through a mahout. 
to Gateway. How far away are we from Christchurch? About 60k. Yep. And how long does it take to get here from Christchurch? Oh, it's about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how quickly you drive. Yeah. Now we're just walking in through the entrance, and on the left-hand side is a very flash playground. <laughs> and we're walking towards the office structure, and towards the right of that is what the funny tupuna. Okay. Kia ora. Kia ora. How are you? Fiona's a local here. There's also one from a family that is local here. Many, many moons. This is the Natural Resource Office for the Taumatu Takiwa. Um, We deal with mainly the farmers in the area and the waterways. What do you mean you deal with the farmers? Um, We process resource consents. um, uh, If they want to dig a bore, um, take water, discharge, um, then there's buildings, subdivisions, and we we just go over it and make sure they're not encroaching on any significant sites, um, not taking water from our main waterways, yeah, and just make sure they're complying with Environment Canterbury's rules and, and our rules. Yeah. <laughs> now, because you're a local, you must mm-hmm. know some of these farmers since you've been a little girl. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so yep. are, are there still generations of farmers farming here? Yes, a lot. M- most of them are um, probably third, fourth generations they're coming into now of um, farmers in the area. So this yeah. saves them a drive into Christchurch? Um, depending if their resource consent has been approved, if not, then it goes through another process with Environment Canterbury um, and court hearings, Environment Court hearings. Now, is that because Naitahu has a relationship with Environment Canterbury around the granting of resource consent? Yes, we do, yep. Right. Yep. So they need to come here, and then if it goes yes. any further, it ends up taking another another yep. process? Yep, it does. Yep. Sure. So did you go to the local school then? No, I grew up in Hornby. Um, my mum lived out here, my grandmother, and going right, right back. Um, so is the house still standing? Yes, I'm, I'm living in my grandmother's house oh, now, so yeah. How neat. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it's freezing. It's really cold. It's a real <laughs> ice box. <laughs> hey, does it have the old um, wood stove still in no, it? No, that got taken out. Oh, um, gosh, when was it? 75, 76, my grandfather lost his leg. He was a um, commercial fisherman on the lake. and So when you're talking about the lake, what lake are you talking Tiwai about? Tiwai Hora, uh, Lake Ellesmere. Um, and through not changing his wet clothes all the time, he ended up um, gangrene, um, lost his leg. So the outhouse, we had to change the bathroom. I, I remember the outhouse, mm-hmm. the long drop. Um, so that's when the bathroom got changed and had the bath taken out, had a shower put in, and a, a modern toilet. <laughs> a flash toilet. A flash toilet. So I remember the old um, gas light having to go out at night along the hedge yeah. out the back into the... Climbing over the cow stall. Oh, it was scary. Yeah. You tried shining, not to go at night. the torch down the thing. Yeah. <laughs> hoping it didn't fall down. Yeah. Oh, and I can see on the walls you've got photos of the hikoi. Yeah. Because yep. Naitahu had a very strong presence there. That's yes, that was the heck of 2004. Yeah. Yep. 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 Might be able to spot Marnie in one of them there somewhere. Oh, hey. <laughs>
So, Manny, you're in the photos for the hickory, is that right? Uh, I don't think so. If you, you'd have to look really hard to try and find me. But I did go. And how did that feel for you as an Idaho really Ben on that? It was really good. I was actually walking right beside Mark Solomon at the time because I was carrying the Idaho Ben on pretty much most of the way. So <laughs> um, I had to say my arms were tired by the end of it. <laughs> but other than that, it was a good day. Now, on the wall are maps. Are these maps of the whole area that the Renanga services? Well, yeah, most of it, a lot of it. Um, if you look towards the bottom end there, Lake Ellesmere or Te Waihora, uh, is right at the entrance of that, which is right down towards the southeast, eastern corner. Ah. So we're right down uh, the southeastern corner of it. Okay, and I think we were talking in the car about how a lot of this land to Christchurch and here was swamp and, and lake. Well, if you imagine this lake stretching all the way back up this way. And that's up so up that it's covered area. places like that we know today as Lincoln, Robinson, Well, it stretches to as far as Lincoln, yeah. So the, the lake's about a third of the size that it once was. That's how much it's been drained. And, of course, all of Christchurch has been drained because it's all swamp. Now, what caused all those swampy areas is both Rakaia and Waimakariri were braided rivers. So what the, does braided mean? Um, they, 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 the, the rivers moved and, and um, they didn't just follow one course, they followed lots of different courses. Oh, yeah. So they spread out like a, a bit like a rake yep. and water fed in everywhere. And part of where we did fed into, for Waimakariri fed into the... Uh, Christchurch area, so mm-hmm. that's part of what made that a swamp, as well as you've got the Avon River there. The Avon so this is just a natural causeway? Yeah, this was all yep. the natural causeways, and what fed into Lake Ellesmere was Rakaia, because it was the same thing, it was a braided river, so it actually didn't just follow one course, it followed lots. Um, um, but Lake Ellesmere, is, or Waihora, has also got a lot of other feeders, um, um, uh, feeder rivers that feed into it. The Halls Wall, or what we know as the Halls Wall now, and so forth. So, all of that area, um, if you look on James Cook's old maps, he paints, draws the Banks Peninsula as an island. Uh-huh. And it's easy to understand how he got Why? that. Yeah. Because there was so much damn water everywhere. Yeah, it would have seemed that way. <laughs> so, um, that's. that's that's why it was was quite a quite a wet area. So that drainage has happened in the last what, two hundred, uh, three hundred years? Yeah, about a hundred hundred odd years, hundred and fifty odd years, maybe. Now to Waihora, is that the Ingwa Tuturu more like Ellesmere? It had a few few Ingwa Tuturu. Uh to Waihora's just uh, more of a descriptive name more than the accurate name. One of its main names is uh Ika uh Oh. Um, again, explaining about how Rakai Hotu um, discovered that there's a whole lot of fish species that could be spawned and grow within this lake, uh, lake mess, and so he claimed it. And there you go. It was a, but it was basically a big fish basket. So Tomutu, what was the relevance of Tomutu in terms of its relationship with the, with the lake? Um, basically, it had one of the prime access points to the lake. So if you wanted to go fishing along the lake or grab your share of uh, pātiki, your tūno, what have you, that's pretty much where you'd park up. Um, but the other relevance it has is if you look along the bottom there where Kaitoreti spit, um, because all of this was all water, all of the top part was all water, 
reasonably difficult to get through. Also, you've got to imagine there was a whole lot of springs within all of that. Um, so if you fall down a spring, you're likely to drown. Mm. Uh, it could become quite treacherous. So the easiest way to do it was either park, sail all the way around or you find your way along the Banks, along the, uh, Banks, uh, Banks Peninsula there and walk across Kaitoriti Spit. So it pretty much became... Maybe. So how long are we talking? I mean, how... What distance is that with the Kaitoriti Split? <laughs> split. It's a fairly, fairly large distance. Um, I couldn't really tell you that, how, how precise they are. But, yeah, um, one of the things, you, archaeologically speaking, is Kaitoriti Split has a number of archaeological sites, thousands of them actually, sites everywhere, which tends to tell you it was a bit of a highway, um, I suppose, mm, walking And middens, like because of the, middens, yeah. the distance, yeah. people would have been camping along Stopped the other way. Yep, yeah, exactly. Um, so you'd walk, have to walk down this split across, if, particularly if it was closed, because it wasn't always open, across there. You'd stop what do you mean by closed? Oh, well, because of the water levels. the lake. Right. The, once if the lake grows high enough, it would either spill over mm. or they would, Māori, even in the old, old times, they'd actually create a cutting to actually release some of the fish species out and, and let others back in so so that um, they could spawn and create more. And that's how close the people back then were to knowing the types of fish species there were yeah. and, how they, and how they bred. Mm. And, because you would need to know that because that was your coastals. Pretty much. So, um, yeah, it was a... Bit of a highway for walking. That the Kaitoritia spit was a bit of a highway, um, and Taumatu was the place you'd come to, and then you'd move on down further south towards Rakaia and all those other sorts of places. Because as somebody who's from um, Tikal Mawi, you know we don't really appreciate the distance that Naitahu and the people earlier to Naitahu used to travel for Kai. Mm. Uh, it was always, and it was, Naitahu, I suppose, uh, was, was a very transient, hapu, very transient iwi, had to be, because you had to follow your food sources. <laughs> um, so when something was in season, you'd have to move to go and get it, mm. and then come back to where you, where, where you started, I suppose, in many cases. So, but that's not to say that there weren't people that stayed in those areas. Oh, yeah, very much so, because one of the sayings for Taumatu is, no matter what the, where the wind blows, there's always food at Taumatu. Something like, ah, ko te mea ki muri, o ki wahora, ko te kai tonu kei orariki. And why it says orariki is orariki was te ru hekeheki's original pa. Um, this is Moki his sons. Te ru hekeheki is one of the... The Ngaitahu Tipunadict came down with the, or part of the migration of Ngaitahu. Um, he originally settled uh, um, along the Bens Peninsula, but then uh, claimed um, Taumatu as yep. his, and his, his part is just basically <coughs> a little bit southeast of this one here that we're standing on, uh, and it's a place called Orariki. Um, there's a church standing on it now called Honuwetere, um, and that's where. Teruhikiki's bar was, but Muki, the one we're standing on, it was his son. So, yeah. So the people here... Uh, we trace, the, we, we say both. We say Ngai Teruhikiki and Ngāti Muki. If you claim Ngāti Muki, you're claiming 
basically Tiruhikiki's descent from Tiruhikiki's son, so oh, yeah. it makes sense to claim Tiruhikiki as well. Um, but yeah, either or six, six mm. one and a half dozen the other really, isn't it? <laughs> so do you guys preserve fish? Um, Massive well, ways of preserving fish, like from one of the. I think one of the things I was saying on the way out here, one of the things we still do is teach eeling, eeling wānanga and so forth. And part of that is is how to how to preserve, how to um, turn and how to catch. So yeah, I suppose you can say we still do, <laughs> don't we, Fee? Yes, we do. Sunny <laughs> so like fish. Me, I do, yeah. So yep. it's me. <laughs> what about you, Fiona? Oh, love it. Yep. 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 Very much so. You don't go crazy for bush kai because you've got too much fish down here? No, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, love the pātiki, the um, yellow belly, flounder. They're the best ones in the lake. And a bit of tonna here and there. And the mullet usually goes to the cat, but... <laughs> Not so much now. Why not but if you've got parsiki coming out of your ears? <laughs> yep. But yeah, and the watercress, we had a lot of watercress out here as well. Um, it's not as much puha anymore. Um, Why's that? I, I'm not sure. I, I suspect through dairying. Um, all the cows. All the cows, yeah. It wasn't that long ago, 30 years ago, um, when my mum would come out every weekend and she'd just stand out there and pick bags of it and um, we haven't really been able to do that in the last 10, 15 years, pick as much puha as, mm. as what there used to be. It's it's in little patches here and there but <laughs> not, not like it used to be. So do the farmers around here tend to be dairy farmers? Yes, pretty much. So what does that do in terms of the effluent with the lake? Um, quite a bit. Um we are trying to manage it. The farmers are on board with us now as well. Um, they're because doing... of course that would inf- that would affect fish stock. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, Wairiwa Little River, their end, um, their lake, Lake Forsyth, um, was severely affected by runoff. Um, with our farmers in this end. Um, They've sort of started up a living streams program, so a lot of them are planting out along their creeks with natives, um, not only to keep the cows away, but also to protect um, the the fish species in there, to keep it shaded and what have you. Um, yeah, it's when it comes to their resource consents and how they discharge, that's when we sort of jump in and explain to them about the lake um, and how they're discharging. So it's just a matter of working with the farmers and making sure they're doing the right things. So a large part of it seems like you're educating them. Yeah, very much so. Yep. But trying to yep. make it a two-way process. Yeah, yeah. But they, they seem to be clicking on, um, which is really good. It, it does take a bit with... <coughs> second, third generation farmers um, and the older farmers because they've been farming a certain way for so long. So um, change is a big thing for them, but, but they, are, they are doing it. It's really good. Yeah. I'm Maria Rakaraku. This is Tahi Ka, and I'm talking with Marnie Sterling. We're at Te Taumusu Marae. Now, do you find that you have to be an expert, Marnie, on everything since your office is the site for farmers to come in and gain any information around environmental consent and things like that? 
Um, yeah, I generally find you actually not so much expert, but you have to be in touch with and be able to understand just about everything, which is why I'm pretty much called the general manager, because I have to generally manage everything. <laughs> um, and so I'm the manager, general manager for the runanga, but that incorporates the activities of the marae, keeping the marae up to, uh, to you know, maintained and stocked uh, for manuhiri and so forth, um, keeping a relationship with um, the farmers and the community here out at Tomatu. Um, and then I guess also your stakeholders, like the whānau, they yeah. need to know what's going on. So do uh, you have to provide like monthly reports? Definitely, or? definitely. <laughs> I get, Weekly emails. I get hung, drawn and quartered if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> hey boy, what's happening with this? Pretty yep. much, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not just because um, I'm answerable to both my executive um, once a month and it's to the runanga once a month. Um, and then, of course, within that, there's various other other entities, uh, the Par Trust. Trustees want to know what we're doing. Um, so you pretty much have to be um, have to understand and comprehend everything from natural resources to marae management to tikanga kawa to financial management. <laughs> um, yeah, it can be quite varied. And um, what prepared you for this role, Money? Oh, I'm not too sure that too much can prepare you for this sort of role, to be honest. Um, I think for a start off, you have to have a really quite a thorough understanding of what administration is and what it does. Um, we can't be too bureaucratic in an office like this, but we do need to make sure that we tell the whānau and let everybody know, every stakeholder know exactly what's going on, who's doing what, and, and where it's all hopefully going to end up. Um, so I had a background in administration, um, so the, the, I was quite fortunate on that little part, but it's also you really have to understand rural communities. Um, again, I was born in Kaikoura, so that didn't seem to be too much of a problem. Um, fishing is another area you have to have some have, have to be able to wrap your head, head around, particularly out here. Um, and and, and um, you have to understand Māori. You have to understand Māori communities. Um, and often all of those factors are actually very divergent <laughs> because administration doesn't necessarily sit well with Māori. And I'm not saying we're, we're disorganised. What I'm often saying is often our own or our stakeholders don't necessarily see any, any value in it. So... Um, those divergent roles you have to try and make as seamless as possible for your whanau, basically, so that they still are well aware of what's going on, have a say in what's going on, um, but we still make sure um, that we're not delaying anything or slowing anything down unduly simply because we're disorganised. <laughs> if it gets delayed, it's rather easy. Even because you don't understand what's going on. That too. Um, so... You have to be able to wrap your head around quite a few divergent um, issues. <laughs> um, so if Auntie asks you why you paid out so much to repair a, a window, you can actually answer. But then you've also got to be answer, able to answer what has happened with a particular investment, why has such and such a resource consent, what, why didn't we challenge aspects of this resource consent, um, Where's the marae lawnmower? 
Why is all those divergent, very different areas, you know? Why aren't the marae curtains up yet? That's all. <laughs> all, it's, all at real different levels. At very much different levels of, of um, uh, you know, understanding. And, mm-hmm. But um, our job, and it's not just mine, we've got Fiona here in our other office um, worker, Rose Nutera, uh, our job is to try and make all that as functional as possible and as seamless as possible. So that's just the way we have to be. And you've got to be a communications extraordinaire. Well, I wouldn't say I was communications extraordinaire, but you do have to do your best and you have to, in light of, I, I suspect, what happens in most modern communities I've been involved in is sometimes you can get rather... Situations and meetings can get, uh, let's say, heated. <laughs> you know, people are compassionate about the marae or, or, or various aspects of the operations. So you have to you have to be able to absorb all of that, and then still provide a, a, a good answer or a critical answer, um, whether it's a good one or not, uh, i.e., one they approve of or not, in a way that is, is non-confrontational. Uh, and as, I suppose, professional as possible. Marnie, are you finding that, you know, with all the stuff that you learn and you relay onto your whānau, that it's contributing to your overall whānau and hapu well-being and capabilities at this level? I think so, I think so, because one of the, the difficulties, uh, I think, with many would I in the South Island, I uh, wouldn't be too honest, is this difficulty in sometimes getting whānau involved in it. Um, often, because who wants to show up for a meeting every month? They can be really boring and sometimes confrontational. Why would you want to go there? Why do you want to put yourself through that? Um, but these days, uh, I think what we've got is we've got many layers of involvement with the marae. So, for example, if your interest um, at a marae level is with ealing, learning how to do that, learning how how our tupuna uh, did the healing, how they treat, how they processed all of that, well, we've got that. Mm. If your interest is weaving, we've got that. If your interest is in the politics of it, i.e. understanding what's going on here and at a Turunang or Ngaitahu level, we've got that. Um, if your interest is kapahaka, we now have that. Um, so there's many, uh, and if your interest is partaking in sporting events or a day's worth of sport um, with our other hapu in the area, we have that. Uh, we have activities for our tamariki um, to do. On, at least it's only one day poo holidays, but it's better than nothing. So it's still something that's an involvement at the marae level and keeping trying to keep people in touch with what it is to be, in this case, to do a hikiki and what, what that's all about. Um, so it's not all about just showing up at a marae on a monthly basis and hearing what's going on. It's being part of it at a different level. So prior to the Naitahu settlement, the creation of Runanga and the resurgence of many marae, mm-hmm. just how patronised was the pa here before that? It was still very, very patronised. It was always people out here wanting to, or doing their own thing. Um, I, I, I guess the scale of it was a little different. Um, these days we have more options. We have people dedicated, like myself, to the administration of that. So you, all of a sudden you've got a, a functional organisational 
organisation behind all the activities that you want to do. It's not reliant upon auntie so-and-so and uncle so-and-so doing their volunteer bits. And I'm not saying that they didn't do it. <laughs> they most definitely did. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just the scale of it is a little different now. We're dealing with different amounts of money and, and different issues. Although... <laughs> If you read back through some of our old minute books, some of them are very much still the same. <laughs> same old yeah. issues, yeah. <laughs> just 50 years later. <laughs> Sometimes the same whānau ones too. <laughs> and I'm there again, it's not just here, that's it most. But I <laughs> yeah, that's what I politics say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what keeps us coming back. It probably is. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, you're still, you're still whānau. Ngā marae o te motu. Kuera Mani Sterling and you heard earlier from Fiona Musson, no Ngati Muki, Otemarai o Taumutsu, Kite Waipaunamu. Online, you'll be able to hear an extensive tour I did of Taumutsu Marai, moving around the complex and hearing more history about the pa and its ancestors. And at our website, radioNZ.co.nz, click through to Māori. Tiahika and our photo gallery and you'll see photos of Taumutsu Marai. And here he is again, Mani Sterling explaining the significance of the Fakatoki that opened this week's Te Ahika. Ko ngā hau ki etahi wahi, ko ngā kai ki orariki. Uh, this Fakatoki refers to the all-year uh, abundance of food at the pa o orariki, which was Te Ruahikeki's pa, um, so there was mahinga kai in all seasons and in all weather. And to me, that um, pretty much says everything as to why uh, people establish themselves, particularly our people, our tupuna, establish themselves in this area. Um, because if there's so much food around, why would you want to move? <laughs> um, if there's plenty here. So, my name's Marnie Sterling. Well, my friend, I'm from Kaikoura. <laughs> Only two more te to go before we take a summer break. Woo-hoo. Rejoin us next week where I visit Akaroa Marae and spend time with George Tikao. He mihi atu ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki me ngā hoa mahi. Mai te whānau a te ahikā ki a tātou katoa. Maori ora! ora.